So I ask that you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. You will recall that last Lord's Day, as we were making our way through Ephesians, that we noted that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And the theme that the Apostle Paul brought before us was certainty of faith. We can actually be certain that we are believers in Jesus Christ. But now we turn to a thanksgiving and prayer. And we're going to focus on themes that we find here in Ephesians 1:15 and following. But before reading, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus that you will hear us as we ask that the Holy Spirit who has given to us this word by divine inspiration that is completely trustworthy and without error, that you will help us to live out of the fullness of it and the commitment that you have given to us through the Spirit's work within our own hearts. And we pray that those who may be among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, even though Christians are addressed in this passage, that they will see their need of Jesus Christ, and that they will leave this place saved from sin, trusting in Jesus, knowing the reason for which they live, and that their sins are pardoned. We pray that your people will be built up mightily in the faith, and indeed we pray that families will be built up mightily in the faith as we see once again the wonder of the person of Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for us as people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the exalted Savior, who died for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended on high. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. No one entering into the significance of prayer can be indifferent to it. When you understand as a believer what prayer is and that you have the privilege of entering into the throne room of God through your high priest, Jesus Christ to make your petitions and requests known with prayers that will be answered in that way which is most for God's glory and the good of his church, no one entering into the significance of prayer can be indifferent to it. And I say that simply because often when I have preached on the theme of prayer in various congregations, I've noticed a kind of disconnect. 
people seem often to be turned off. They don't listen as they should. It's not because I'm preaching differently than I ordinarily would. I'm expounding the text and preaching what is here. It is because we Christians need to understand the significance of prayer. I believe we do in this congregation increasingly understand it. I was with someone in this congregation yesterday, a man of prayer. Oh, to hear that man pray, to see this man weep before the Lord, to hear him call out to God in prayer, to know that this man has been with God. Oh, what a wonderful thing it was to hear this man in our congregation pray. This man knows what it is to commune with God. And you can be like that too, because you're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. You have the same Bible that teaches you about prayer. The Apostle Paul became this kind of man. Having persecuted the church, he was saved by grace on the Damascus Road. And one of the first things we read about him was, Behold, he prays. And as we come to this prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church, I can say without hesitation that this prayer is a model for us in our prayers, especially for one another, because the things for which the Apostle Paul prays in this prayer are the things that we will continue to need until we enter into our heavenly inheritance. And so we see in this passage essentially four things that I want to underscore about prayer from the passage that we have just read. The first thing for which the Apostle Paul prays is wisdom. Wisdom. He says in 15 through 17, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the first petition. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. As Calvin put it, the knowledge of the godly is never so pure, but that some bleariness troubles the eyes and obscurity hinders them. And so he wants them to have a clear vision and he wants them to have wisdom in this world as they live out their Christian lives. He's praying essentially for wisdom and clear knowledge so that they may attain the goal of bringing glory to God. He's asking that they will have an attitude of humility before the Lord that asks for wisdom from above. The way in which we might put it today is, we are praying that you might be wise in understanding the Bible so that you can live your Christian lives to God's glory. So that you can understand that what has been shown to us about the resources that we have in Christ, that Paul has been expounding in this first chapter, that you can take all of those resources and that you can be wise in living a godly life for Christ Jesus. Now I ask you, did not the church in Paul's day have every reason to ask God, as we see in verse 17, for a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Remember the Apostle Paul is ministering to the church in the Roman Empire. And writing Ephesians as he does, essentially the middle of the first century AD, it will only be a few more years toward the end of that century in which Domitian is the emperor who claimed to be Lord and God and who said to Christians, you have a choice. You can come and worship at my statue or you will be put to death. Now I would say it requires a lot of wisdom to know how to confess Christ, to confess him faithfully and boldly in a world like that, wouldn't you? Just another 30 or so years after that, 
above this province of Asia that is in southwest Turkey, there's this province of Bithynia. And the governor of Bithynia at that time, under the emperor Trajan, was Pliny the Younger. And this is what he wrote about Christians to the emperor. He says about these troublesome Christians, I asked them whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I questioned a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. Those who denied that they were Christians when they called upon the gods with words dictated by me and offered prayer, incense, and wine to Trajan's image, to your image, and moreover cursed Christ, which those who are really Christians cannot be forced to do, these, I thought, should be discharged. Others declared that they had been Christians, had ceased some three years before, many others said up to 25 years, They all worshipped her image and statues and gods and cursed Christ. So by the end of the century in which the Apostle Paul is writing, if you were a Christian, your business declined, you were ostracized by society, and very possibly put to death for your faith in Jesus Christ. But it was not only then and there that the church needed wisdom. The church in our world needs a great deal of wisdom. Think of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are confessing Jesus in Islamic countries today. But it's not only those Christians. You and I need wisdom. This church needs wisdom. As we live in a country that is not completely but in large measure ruled by ungodly men who want for our culture the polar opposite of God's commands. And as we begin to see Christians persecuted in our own land and in our own country in very definite and specific ways, don't you think we should be praying for wisdom for the church today? You think this is a passing remark on Paul's side? Or is it something that we really need to do? And what about you? I know enough about many of your lives to know that you need wisdom right now, and you need wisdom from above. You need to enter into the spirit of Paul's prayer, and you need to be praying one for another in this congregation that God will give to your brothers and sisters wisdom because we need wisdom desperately. And do you know what God promises? In James chapter 1 verse 15... He says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. That if you ask God, your Father, for wisdom, he's going to give that wisdom to you. Now folks, prayer for wisdom shows that we are repenting of self-sufficiency. Prayer for wisdom shows that we're not relying upon our own autonomy. Prayer for wisdom shows that we are submitting our hearts to the plan of God for our lives, even when we don't get it. And if ever we would grow in grace, if ever we would see the church in our country changed, if ever we would see our own lives changed, then we need to be men and women of prayer. And one of the things for which we need so desperately to pray is that God will help us to have wisdom. That is, to take this word, to gain a knowledge of it, and insight into how we might apply it, and recognize that all of these things that Paul has said in Ephesians 1, all of these things speak to us comprehensively of our position in Christ and the resources that we have in Him. 
So he prays for wisdom first. But I want you to notice secondly that the Apostle Paul prays that the church will have an enlightened heart. He says in verse 18, if you will look, "...having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead." And so he says in verse 18, I'm praying that you will have an enlightened heart. Now heart means mind. When we use the term heart, we tend to think that it means emotions. In the Hebrew way of thinking, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's how you think that affects your emotions and affects your will. He's praying that you'll have an enlightened mind as well as enlightened affections. That's what Paul is praying Reading D. Martin Lloyd-Jones recently, I was reminded of, of an historical incident that, that uh, was very helpful here. You know the name, of course, William Wilberforce. You know that he was a great evangelical Christian in the 18th century in England, that he was a great Christian politician, and that as he was a statesman, he was used of the Lord, that uh, slavery was stopped, the slave trade was stopped in England. Probably you also know the name William Pitt, who was one of his friends and also a great statesman and politician of his day in England, William Pitt the Younger. Well, Wilberforce was an outstanding Christian. William Pitt was not a Christian. And Wilberforce was very concerned that his friend Pitt know Christ. And so he took him along with him to a church in London in which Cecil, the great evangelical preacher, was preaching. And as Cecil preached, Wilberforce, after the service, said, I have never heard such powerful preaching of Christ in my life. And William Pitt said, you know, I listened intently, and I can't tell you what that preacher was saying. That's what Paul means when he speaks of an enlightened heart. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins can hear the same sermon you hear, the same passage expounded. You can walk out and you will say, my heart has been so powerfully ministered to. I've never heard the Word of God come to me with such power. The Holy Spirit applied it in such rich and wonderful ways. And an unbeliever will walk out and will say, I don't have the foggiest notion of what that preacher meant. And the reason for this, of course, is that enlightenment is the work of God's efficacious grace through His Holy Spirit. We continue as Christians to need enlightenment, illumination, because, as Calvin says, we're bleary-eyed. And we need continued work through the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes. Now that's what he prays for in verse 18. Specifically, he wants them to have enlightened hearts that they might know that God has a plan for them and He is bringing that plan to fruition. Do you need to know that? Do you need to know God has a plan for His church and a plan for my life, even in the midst of things that seem dark and hard, and He is bringing those things to fruition? Well, He says in verse 18 specifically what that plan is. I'm praying that your heart will be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which you are irresistibly called, the riches of your mutual inheritance together as saints, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power. In other words, that 
He can actually bring you to your inheritance because he is exerting his power to do so. Paul heaps up words, by the way, in verse 19 for power. Four words. He uses the word dunamis, energeia, kratos, iskus, all of which mean power. All of this infinite power belongs to our exalted Savior, and the Lord is exercising that so that you might understand the hope to which you've been called, the riches of your inheritance, and the mutual inheritance that is fostered by this immeasurable greatness of God's own power. And of this, he wants you to be confident. Paul wants Christians to be confident. And so notice how he says it in verse 18, so that you may know. No doubt about it, no question about it, but so that your hearts may be certain that you may know these things, that you may know that God's power is working for you and in you, that in the midst of your joys that is true, but in the midst of your sorrows that is true also. Listen, this is the kind of power the world will never understand and cannot see. So that this little 90-year-old lady who today is a believer in Jesus has been most of her life. She's trusted in Jesus. And there she is, fading away and about to go into glory. She's about to die. God's power is at work in and for her in ways that the world can never understand and the world could never see, bringing this little lady to her heavenly inheritance. So he prays that you might have enlightened eyes to see these things. But then I want to focus on this idea of power. So thirdly, he prays that the church will apprehend God's power. Look again at verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now what is he saying here? Only God's power can make dead men live. Only God's power, only resurrection power can make men and women live. And we believe according to the working of his mighty power. How else could we believe? We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were estranged from God. We did not have a heart that loved him, but rather hated him. And this is what Saul of Tarsus, who now by divine inspiration writes this epistle, knows. That he who persecuted the church, who hated God, who hated Christians, who met Jesus Christ on the Damascus road now can write, I know something of God's power in my life too, because he raised me spiritually from the dead and will raise me up also in the last day. Listen, the power that God exerts in believers is the same power that the Father exerted in Christ when the Father raised him from the dead. Let me say it again. The power 
that God exerts in believers is the same power that the Father exerted in Christ when the Father raised him from the dead. That's what Paul says. And Paul does not exaggerate. This is not hyperbole. Our regeneration and our perseverance to the end is a display of God's infinite power. He'll make this point in chapter 2. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but now made alive in Christ Jesus. This is God's energia, His energy, His power for us. As we read in the words of Toplady, the work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete His promises, yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future or things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. What is Paul saying by divine inspiration? What is God saying through Paul? He's saying this. God has infinite power at his disposal. You seem weak. The inheritance seems far off. But here is what I'm praying. I'm praying that you will be given enlightened eyes so that in the midst of the trials of life you can really grasp that there is a steadfast hope, an inheritance that awaits you, and that you will enter into it because the power that is at work in your lives is the same power that God the Father exercised when he raised his son from the dead so that you need not despair. Is Christ raised? You are raised in him. And he is exercising that same power to bring every true believer in Christ to your promised inheritance. And this great power that he exerts, he's doing it in and through the weaknesses of life. The walk and final triumph of faith, the Lord is showing through it all his power. In your utter and complete weakness, he is showing his strength. He is at work with his resurrection power. When you are in the crucible, he is refining the gold and burning off the dross. When you are in the mortar and the pestle is wrenching and painful, the resurrection power of Jesus pervades it so that the sweet aroma of grace comes through. And so that in the midst of the troubles and trials of life, as God exerts his power in and through our weakness and utter dependence on him, he's showing you in this life that what really matters is eternity. That's power, I would say. To make a dead man live, to make us see that life is for eternity, to focus our attention not upon ourselves or even our trials ultimately, but upon his glory, man, that's power. Only God can do that. Then I want to show you something else, fourthly. Paul prays in view. Paul prays in view of Christ's exaltation. Let's read again verses 19 through 23. 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's Paul in prison, but he's not captivated by his captors. He's captivated by God's glory. He prays and he knows his prayers are not in vain. He's not praying, woe is me, but Lord bless the church. And he draws their attention. He's in prison. He writes to them and draws their attention to the exalted Christ. And he says to us in this passage that Christ is exalted to the Father's right hand. Christ as mediator is invested with sovereign authority. And Calvin says it powerfully. Since the right hand of God fills heaven and earth, it follows that the kingdom and power of Christ are everywhere diffused. And in verse 21, he tells us that he's exalted this high above all rule and authority, which undoubtedly means the angelic beings, not only in this age, but in the coming one, fulfilling in a marvelously glorious manner what we read in Psalm 8 this morning, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. Christ is head over everything for the sake of his church. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church or for the sake of his church. His sovereignty and his dominion is for the sake of his church. Listen, believer, his sovereignty and dominion is for your sake. He is exercising his sovereignty and power and dominion for you. For you. You weak, struggling Christian. For you. And verse 23 shows that Christ, Christ is relentless in his care for the church. For he says in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I wonder if you understand what he's saying. He's saying that this one whose fullness fills all in all, that his fullness, his great love is such that he's saying, even though I am in need of no one and I am in need of nothing, I am not going to consider myself complete until I have you in heaven with me. The church is his fullness. I love you so much that I am not going to consider you myself complete without your being where I am. I do not regard myself as complete without you, my bride. I do not consider myself complete until you enter your inheritance, and I am bending all of my omnipotence to see that it happens. Hendrickson says it really beautifully. The words who fills all in all mean that Christ fills all the universe in all respects. That is, the entire universe 
is not only dependent on Him for the fulfillment of its every need, but also governed by Him in the interests of His church. So I am bold to say, as we have studied Ephesians 1 together, and we have seen something of His great plan that all things be under the headship of Christ, and that He has predestined us to our eternal inheritance, I am bold to say that there is not one thing that happens in this world or in God's universe. No matter how inexplicable to us, no matter how dark it may seem, there is not one thing that does not fall out for His glory and for your good. And if you will believe that, which is true, it will transform the way you live and the way you see your circumstances and the hardships and the trials and the difficulties that seem to wrap us up. Because what really matters is eternity. And Paul wants his people to look at Jesus and to focus on the person of Christ. Now I'm going to bring you two final applications, just two. The first one relates to prayer. Since Christ is the exalted head and king of his church who exerts his power to accomplish his goal for you, and since this is revealed to us in a prayer, then pray, Christian, pray in light of Christ's exaltation. Pray in light of the fact that the mediator, Jesus, that all power and authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, And he's promised to be with us till the end of the age. In other words, elevate your prayers. For what do you pray? Where do you focus? Elevate your prayers. Look up to the ascended Christ sitting in power at the Father's right hand and pray big prayers. Pray prayers with cosmic scope. Tonight we have a prayer meeting. For what do we pray? Will you pray for God's glory? Will you pray for the success of Christ's kingdom? Will you pray that the church will have wisdom? Will you pray for enlightened hearts, for the apprehension of his resurrection power? Will you pray in light of the promise that the ascended Christ is exercising his power at God's right hand to fulfill the promise of inheritance to his church? You pray that way? When you're under temptation and you're struggling with temptation and sin, Never say, I don't have power to overcome it. That's just not true. You need enlightened eyes to see it because the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in the Christian's life. Do you know these words of Samuel Chadwick? Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil but trembles when we pray. Do you believe that? Do you? Okay, you need to hear it again? Okay. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil but trembles when we pray. Do you believe that? See you tonight.
Second application has to do with morale. Morale. Every army needs its morale boosted, right? Never has an army had such a right to high morale as does the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is exalted, therefore there is never room for despair. Christ, your sovereign mediator, controls the darkest moments, none accepted. Thomas Manton the Puritan said, His exaltation answered his humiliation. His death was answered by his resurrection. His going into the grave by his ascending into heaven. His lying in the tomb by sitting at God's right hand. And therefore, people of God, no opposition to Christ will ultimately prosper. People of God, Christ is king. He is completing his bride in his recreative power. He so loves his own that in that love he will not consider himself complete without them. He even loves you so much that he will take you through dark things, hard things, in order to make you to be the person that he wants you to be. He's wielding a power for his church that is beyond resistance and incapable of defeat. Victory belongs to Christ. Your Savior has been raised from the dead, exalted in a transcendently glorious manner. Philippians 2.9, God raised him to the loftiest heights. Hebrews 4.10, he passed through the heavens. Ephesians 4.10, ascended far above all the heavens. Hebrews 1.3, he is seated at the right hand of God's throne. Hebrews 7.26, was lifted high above the heavens. And here in Ephesians, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He is your hyper-exalted Christ. Before the invasion of Normandy, General Eisenhower wrote a piece of paper and put it in his pocket in the event that he would need to use it before the news media. And essentially, the piece of paper said this, if the invasion of Normandy fails, I alone am to blame. There is no such paper in Christ's pocket. His purpose cannot fail. His plan for you will not fail. His determination for his church is going to succeed. There is no such paper in Christ's pocket. His headship over all things for the sake of his church cannot fail. His purpose for the universe cannot fail. The salvation of his people cannot and will fail. And I conclude with these words from an old Dutch hymn. One day all creation shall bow to our Lord. He now among the angels his name is adored. May we at his coming with glorified throng stand singing his praises in heaven's great song. Jesus, Jesus, Savior adored of all men and angels forever the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, Savior adored of all men and angels forever the Lord. God's people said, 